1: Hey folks, it's Mark from the Partially Examined Life. So I'm sure you noticed that part two of our Quine's Epistemology Naturalized discussion was not, as has been the case for the past couple of years, ...hidden behind a paywall. We missed having a release every week for the public, but we also liked what we got to do with our supporter-only discussion continuations. So basically what we used to do over two parts, now we're doing over three parts, and it's this third part that is being reserved for our paid supporters. So we can be extremely free with our opinions, so we can dive deep into deep deep into the text if you want the full partially examined life experience you should become a supporter you can see several ways of doing that at partially examined support what you're about to hear is a short preview of that part three discussion i did not give you the very beginning of the discussion where we recapped the whole indeterminative translation thing instead you'll hear the second 10 minutes of the discussion where we turned to our close reading of the text
0: so where we are, I guess it's around 82. You know, as he moves on from this indeterminacy of translation portion, he will do a little summary I think at the top of 82, which is to say a little recap of what we've gotten so far. So a statement of the world doesn't always ha- or usually have, quote, have a separable fund of empirical consequences that it can call its own. So we've got a little bit into that in the last part so that you can Just take any given sentence and reduce it to sense data plus logic plus set theory. That lack of reducibility and the lack of a sentence specific set of empirical consequences, those two things go together. And then what that means is that there really is no advantage of epistemological reduction over psychology, right? I mean, the whole point of this epistemological reduction was to kind of found science. And if that's impossible, then why limit ourselves? Why say, oh, we're being circular, you know, so we shouldn't rely on psychology because psychology is science. And say, so, no, we're not really trying to, he said this before in the essay, but, you know, this is a restatement of it. We're not really trying to do a deductive grounding of science with psychology. Therefore, we can just, we can use it to look at, you know, as he said before, how construction actually occurs, which is, has a lot to do with language acquisition. So as he moves on here, he'll just basically say, epistemology we treat it as psychology one way to think about this is that we think about how is it that these two-dimensional radiation inputs right whatever happens on the surface of the eye how does that turn into 3d description outputs that's a way to rephrase the epistemological question in terms of psychology instead of us doing the construction we're looking at a brain doing the construction a mind doing the construction And this is still, it's not like we've gotten away from the question of the relation of evidence to theory. And this is where he'll give his bit about theory transcending the evidence. We're still interested in that, but we're going to approach that through psychology. Let me just read this one quote, because this is very, I think, you know, when I first read this, I was kind of offended by this, all this talk of, you know, patterns of irradiation, (laughs) this kind of reduction of human beings to the robots, to collections of sensors but i appreciate what he's doing here but so he'll say this human subject is accorded a certain experimentally controlled input certain patterns of irradiation in assorted frequencies for instance and in the fullness of time the subject delivers as output a description of the three-dimensional external world and its history so that's pretty amazing this relation between meager input and the torrential output is kind of way to describe the motivation for doing epistemology in the first place. It's kind of a recasting of the problem.
1: It's all symbolism. He doesn't have the new key to, to unlock. That's why there's a torrential output, because it's symbolic. I am actually wondering about how to fit that thing that was going around around the same time in philosophical history from the Langer, with this,
0: I know. I, you know, I thought about it a bit while I was reading Quine too, and I thought, yeah, there's a lot of crossover, and I know she must have been influenced, if not by Quine directly, by the this conversation, right?
1: Yeah, she was rejecting positivism in the same way. Well, at the same time, approximately that Quine was in the same way, not necessarily, particularly because I don't feel like talking about symbols and talking about physiology, which seems to be what's going on here. Those are not the same kind of explanation. Now, when Coyne is talking about psychology, is he just talking about physiology? Or is he talking in the cognitive science way about flowcharts, right? Functional, mm-hmm. we don't know quite what neurons are firing where, and we'll leave that to the people with their brain scanners, the actual neuropsychologists. But we can draw some sort of chart of the stages at which these must come together. And we can tell them because, you know, maybe there are people with different kinds of brain injuries that stop you at a certain place. So like this person who has a hole in their left parietal lobe, you know, can get as far as Hmm. making a three-dimensional representation out of a two-dimensional representation, but then can't express it linguistically. Or, you know, you could tell, whereas I think we were asking directly with Langer if Langer was saying. Hey, right at the point of the senses, there's some sort of symbolism coming in. So that two dimensional grid that goes on the eyes or that goes on each eye is in its initial processing gets hooked to something in memory or something like that. Like there would probably be a way again, looking at brain damage patients or something to tell like, Oh, okay. Actually, even the most brain damage, you know, as long as they have their eyes are functional, then we can get some evidence that they've created, you know, this symbolic pattern. And I couldn't make any sense of that in our part three or nightcap based on Langer.
0: Yeah, he refers to empirical psychology. So we know we're not doing, he's not concerned with psychoanalysis here and what it's going to tell us. So, mm-hmm. You know, I think, some, I think a lot of it would look a lot like cognitive science. And, you know, I think a lot of research psychology looks this way today. But one of the key components here is paying close attention to these patterns of irradiation, right? And knowing what those inputs are and then relating them to the outputs, the complication as always with psychology, right? is we're relying on the reports of people and Quine mm-hmm. is going to sidestep. He's
1: not going to talk about that
0: because that would create enormous problems.
1: Why not? Because it seems like if he's saying the output is the torrential, you know, what people say, then True. like that stage of articulation is part of his issue. So it's not straight stimulus to mind. It's stimulus to behavior. Right. Language behavior, but it, I think
0: mm-hmm. the same complications arise, right? So he could say, yeah, I'm really just talking about linguistic behavior at this point. But then what is linguistic behavior unless we are acting as interpreters, right? It's not simply someone making noise with their mouth. We have to stand in as the interpreter of that. And we have to be able to ascribe meaning to it. And we have to be language speakers within that system. And you know, it's all well and good. And I, I think this is something that comes out in the Hilton and Kemp secondary sources too, you know, and I think it's important, but to think of the meanings of words become dispositions.
1: To have a language, remember, because meaning is not at the level of words, primarily, it's at the level of sentences. and, And the sentences, you know, are parts of a theory. So to have a language, he says, is on the one hand to have a theory, and it's also to have a certain set of dispositions. Yeah. So it's like the disposition to express you know, that that's a rabbit or whatever, if I point at a rabbit and ask you.
0: Right. Except it would be much more finer grained. Seth, what do you think of psychology as our method for epistemology?
2: I mean, saying the term psychology is pretty broad. You know, I think what Quine seems to mean when he says psychology is something like developmental psychology or maybe the parts of psychology that deal specifically with language acquisition, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I get the thrust of his general argument, but I don't have any strong sense that he really actually knows anything about psychology. One of the things I was thinking of when reading this was because the reference, the allusion to the way a child develops language is so brief, we've certainly in some past episodes talked about this topic and You know, there's all kinds of complications in child development that go beyond language that I think would be interesting. Wes, you're certainly familiar with, you know, all of these things like the mirror stage and, you know, these different types of developmental aspects. And do they point to something different? You know, so I'm wondering if he just has a very narrow conception, a very naive and narrow conception of what psychology actually shows us. And, and I don't know if he would object to that, but if somehow we did an in depth deep dive, into a developmental psychology from birth to, I don't know, teenage years or something like that. And we found out that, in fact, it appears as though we develop concepts or something that don't seem to be in response to sensations, the meager data that we get. It would be an interesting complication to his proposal.
1: Well, certainly, even Locke thought that we have all these built in abilities to manipulate sensation. And so in that sense, the result does not all come from sensation. I think that is part of what psychology would be determining. So like Chomsky and grammar or whatever, and if some ways of translating sense data into thought are more natural than others are more, uh, you know, we could look at how they generalize them across linguistic communities or something like that, or how linguistic communities different. I think Klein would be open to all
0: that. I mean, this comes out in the secondary literature, right? And there's other works that we haven't read, right? But there are such things as similarity spaces. And there's the question of salience and what's essential versus not essential. So it's not even enough that we have the ability to notice some similarities. Some have to be more salient than others to us to build the world in the way that we do it. Otherwise, it would be the same sort of buzzing confusion because at some level, everything's similar to everything else. Which, which ones do you pick out as most relevant? Which ones are you using to categorize objects and that that's got to be innate but as a result of evolution
1: and if it, it helps fill out like what if you're saying having a language is having a theory is having a set of dispositions a set of beliefs like if those are among the ones that you have to include it might not even be an numerable list it seems like if you're talking about dispositions there are probably infinitely many dispositions, infinitely many ways you could characterize the belief space that is having a language and being able to use it because it is ultimately a know-how. It's not like a know that, it's not a list of sentences. How do we determine what is a salient feature in doing ostension, for instance, in pointing at the squirrel or the tree or whatever? That's just a notorious, right? The thing that Dreyfus following Heidegger said We could never teach computers to do because all computers can do is have a list of sentences and you would never actually be able to get know-how out of that. I'm no longer sure about the the state of technology on that. And there were other ways that cognitive scientists approached information storing like the neural networks that instead of having a list of sentences, like we have similarity spaces or something, you know, we something like a concept or a symbol, you know, taking Langer's piece And every time they just get reinforced to different amounts. So in other words, whereas a list of sentences is a a purely digital system, a neural network thing, I believe, has characteristics of, of analog systems because it's like you're creating different modules, different little organelles that could just be given more or less weight by different experiences. I don't remember the details, but I'm just saying there are other possible ways of talking about what is this theory that we have as language speakers according to Quine. Yep. Such that theory, if that's true, sounds misleading, right? Doesn't theory seem to imply that you could spell out what all the tenets of a the theory are? I'm not sure. What Quine does next is he'll tell us
0: that this transition to empirical psychology has the effect of helping us with a stubborn old enigma of epistemological priority, which is to say, what is it that counts as observation? Is it the unconscious two-dimensional irradiations or is it the conscious three-dimensional apprehensions now we can say that it basically what is closest in causal proximity to our sensory receptors that's what's going to count as observation
1: it means it's not a phenomenological thing yeah So all this myth of the given stuff.
0: It's going to turn out to be observation sentences, right? Observation sentences are those that are in closest causal proximity to sensory receptors. And in the beginning, you know, Seth was talking about language acquisition, which I think he's, that's right. That's a lot of what psychology here means, the, the study of that. You know, it's about babies learning to emit the right sounds in the right stimulation context. So it's something that sounds very behaviorist. In the beginning.
1: If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partially life.com slash support. Thanks for listening.
0: So you've got an idea for a business? The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media?